0: This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by The Strenuous Life. So ever since I started AOM back in 2008, I wanted to create a platform to help men put the stuff we write about into action. I don't want people just to read this stuff. I actually want them to do this stuff. So after years of brainstorming, like two years of dedicated work, we've launched that platform. It's called The Strenuous Life. And what it is, you sign up, you have access to 50 different badges or over 50 different badges based around 50 different skills. There's both hard and soft skills. So you'll have badges on wilderness survival, marksmanship, swimming, fire building, car repair, et cetera but then we also have badges on, you know, how to be a good host, social skills, how to be a better father. And then besides that, we provide tools that'll hold you accountable for your fitness goals and just being a person of use, a person of service. If you want to check out and find out more information about the Strenuous Life and find out when our next enrollment is, go to strenuouslife.co. You can find out more about the program and also make sure to get your email in there because we're going to be launching an enrollment in January 2018, a big one. Class sizes are limited, so you want to get on that list and then whenever we send out an email, sign up fast because they go fast. Go Go to the strenuouslife.co, go check it out. I think you're really going to like it. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, there's been a lot written about the fall of the Roman Empire. But what often gets overlooked is that before Rome became an empire with what was effectively a king, it was a kingless republic. What was that republic like, and why did it fall into an empire before the empire itself fell? Well, my guest today explores this question in his book *The Storm Before the Storm*. His name is Mike Duncan, and he's the host of the *Revolutions in the History of Rome* podcast. Today on the show, Mike walks us through the formation of the Roman Republic and why it was so unique amongst ancient governments. He then explains the unwritten code of behavior that governed Romans and how it enabled the republic to last for nearly 500 years. He then walks us through how the breakdown of that code led to the breakdown of the republic and how reformers seeking to take Rome back to the good old days of the Republic only sped up its fall. We then discuss if we can see any similarities between Rome's Republic and the American Republic. It's a fascinating episode, an oft-overlooked part of Roman history. If you want to check out the show notes for more resources, go to aom.is Duncan. Mike Duncan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you're the host of the History of Rome podcast, which ran from 2007. Man, you were like... One of the <laughs> pioneers of podcasts, and if you started your podcast 2007 to 2012, what was the impetus behind starting a podcast, particularly one about the history of Rome? Um, yeah, I have now officially been
1: around for a very long time. Uh, when I started in 2007, you know, most people didn't know what podcasting was at the time, but there were a ton of podcasts that existed. So when I started, it certainly didn't feel like, oh, I'm you know, I'm charting you know, virgin territory here. I'm you know, I'm like a pioneer out in the woods. There was actually Fairly good ecosystem of podcasts that existed, and I got hooked onto various history podcasts. And at the same time, I was reading a bunch of old Roman history. This was just is a particular love of mine: ancient history in general, um, and the Romans in particular. And I was reading all of Livy and Polybius and Plutarch, and really digging into the ancient sources. And at the same time, had discovered podcasting as a medium. And uh, went looking for a Roman history podcast to supplement what I was teaching myself, and at that point in 2007, no such show existed. So I'm, you know, I'm sitting on this pile of material that is great, all these great stories that nobody ever hears of. I know about this new medium called podcasting. There is a there's no Roman history podcast, and I just, you know, started fitting everything together in my head, and sat down one day and was like, "I'm just gonna do a narrative history podcast that will explain the entire Roman Empire from beginning to end." I, I can do this. Why can't I do this? Um, and I just started
0: doing it. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, uh, good for you for doing that. I love hearing stories of people where they, they looking, for, they had a problem, saw that wasn't being filled, so they started themselves. That's awesome. Um, so your book, "The Storm Before the Storm." Uh, is taken from this podcast that you, you did and you focus particularly on the years before the fall of the Roman Republic. There's lots of stuff out there about the fall of the Roman empire. I'm curious out of all the history of Rome, you covered in the years of your podcast. Why did you pick this particular period in Roman history? So I settled on
1: this particular period. There's there's two reasons why I wound up like with this particular period, which is you know about 146 BC to um, to 78 BC. Is first of all, like you say, everybody everybody knows the story of Caesar and Mark Antony and Cleopatra, like that that stuff that that was covered in HBO's Rome series. Um, you know those those guys, those personalities, those stories are told. Over and over and over again, Um, and there's tons of great Roman history that people don't ever get to experience because we have a tendency to go back to like the old favorites. Um, You know, we just want the greatest hits. We don't want new material, I guess. Um, And so, just pulling it back two generations and and asking, okay, well, if Julius Caesar comes along in 40 BC and 50 BC and wrecks the Republic uh, was the Republic healthy in the first place? Um, was he, was he able to take down a system, um, that was strong and healthy? And the answer is of course, no. And if you want to know why it is that the system was, the Republican system was unhealthy to the point where a bunch of guys could come in and wage civil wars against each other and have the whole thing collapse into a dictatorship, like what caused that, what caused the sickness to begin with? And to, to understand that you need to go back two or three generations. Um, And so that's how I land on the Gracchi and Marius and Sulla and that their stories and their lives and that generation, I mean, you read the book. It is an incredibly, you know, it's action-packed. It's fascinating. um, It's every bit as interesting as anything that Caesar ever got up to. um, And we just, we don't ever talk about it. So that was, I wanted to explore this, this topic of if you have a Republic that's strong and healthy and then it collapses, why does it start to collapse? What are, what are the things that,
0: that really opened up? Well, before we get into why it collapsed, let's talk about, the Roman Republic and how it got its start because I think for people to understand why, you know, the, 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 gravity of it collapsing, you have to understand like how amazing it was, right? How innovative it was. So when did the Roman Republic start and what were its component parts and why was, why was it such an anomaly in the ancient world and when it comes to government? The legendary
1: founding date of the Republic is 509 BC. Um, The book is covering, starts at about 146 BC, and this is when it starts to collapse. The Republic then doesn't actually fall, fall until like the 20s BC. So you're talking about almost 500 years of the of rome existing as a republic a kingless republic which at the time when when rome was founded in 509 bc i mean everything was you know the mediterranean world was mostly city-states and most of those just like rome was and just like rome was at the founding of the republic it was they were all kingdoms they were ruled by kings they you know tribes would be ruled by chieftains it was a you know it's the very sort of simple autocratic way of doing business like not even even the greeks uh were only just getting started with with democracy in athens so for the roman republic to not just kick out the usually what happens if if you are angry at a king is you kick out one king and then you bring in a new king you're like okay now you're our king uh we didn't like the old king but now we like you and you're the new king and the, the really innovative, crazy thing that the Romans did is the Senate got together, they threw out the last king of Rome, and said, look, we're done with kings, we're just going to have this cooperative government where we rule it, you know, there's a little ruling clique of senatorial families, and it's an, it's an oligarchy, but no one of us is going to be a king. Now, this is something that happens in other city-states in the Mediterranean world and in the ancient world, but they would usually collapse after a couple generations. They, they wouldn't usually last for that long, never more than a century. And the, the insane thing is that the Romans, year in and year out, for 500 years— managed to maintain a kingless republic which is which is a fairly remarkable achievement especially given you know the era in which they were living
0: so how did they come to this to this arrangement of a kingless republic i mean was there like a you know a lawgiver sort of like lycurgus of sparta or was it just sort of consensus they decided we're done with that and we're going to go this new route it was, ve- it was very much
1: consensus, I would say. I mean, there, there's a couple of names that are important. Publicola is, is a guy who's, you know, their names will pop up. They were early leaders of the republic. But the Romans, the way that they handled their politics and the way that they really handled anything, like even running their own personal lives, is that they did everything after talking it over with a bunch of people. Like even running your own household, you would get together your friends and be like, oh, I'm thinking about buying a new plot of land. Like, what do you think I should do? they They came to group decisions a lot, whether they're out running a province or whether they're, um You know, whether now it's how are we going to organize and run our own polity? So I think it really was just a a bunch of guys getting together in a room and saying, look, we don't want to have one person ruling over us. Let's try to devise a bunch of offices and a bunch of uh, electoral processes that will stop any one of us from ever acquiring
0: absolute power ever again. So another unique aspect of the Roman Republic and their government was there, there weren't any written laws. Instead, they lived by an unwritten code called. And I think I'm pronouncing this right. See so if my college Latin will, you know, not fail me. "Moris maiorum." Yeah, right. uh, Mos maiorum." Mos maiorum." So, what was that? What constituted "most maiorum"? So, what it is, uh, you know, the Romans
1: do have some written law, right? There's the Twelve Tables of the Law, um, which was, you know, written shortly after the Republic is founded. But yeah, they didn't do much in the way they didn't, they weren't constantly legislating things. And they certainly didn't have any sort of like Napoleonic code level of detail for um, what was legal, what was illegal, what you could do, what you couldn't do. It was just, um, it was a, it was a traditions of behavior and modes of just norms of behavior that each generation would take from the generation that preceded it, they would imbibe it, they would uh, internalize it, and then they would continue to behave in the same way. And that alone, just the way, I don't know if it was the uh, some something in the DNA or something in the water, but the Romans were very small sea conservative people they didn't they didn't need a ton of innovation they were very happy to model their own behavior off the off the behavior of their fathers there wasn't there didn't seem to be the same need to like rebel and make new things and innovate and and you know uh, launch yourself forward into the future uh, that is so common in the modern world the romans that would have been i was all alien to them they liked the idea that things were the same now as they were for for their fathers and then my sons and my daughters will live in the same basic world that I live in. And because they were so instinctively uh, drawn to that way of life, you don't need a ton of rules and laws to say you can't do this and you can't do that because they would just naturally
0: behave in a certain way. And this, uh, the most Mayorum, that, I mean, as we will talk about here in a bit, but the breakdown of the Republic was basically it just followed the breakdown of most Mayorum. Right. Because... If if you
1: hone in specifically on the political side of it, you know it's it's custom that you know when you're when you're a consul and you um and your your term of office is up, you don't say oh I'm going to use whatever power I have at my disposal right now uh, to stay in power. You're just going to you're going to resign, and the next guy's going to take over. And then even with dictatorships, the Romans did it, even though they had this dual consulship where two men were elected each year, and then they would only serve for a year before they returned to the citizen body that in times of emergency, they had an office called dictator. And that person was in fact given absolute power. And the remarkable thing is that over the course of these 500 years that the Republic existed, every time the Romans handed absolute power to somebody, they set down their office when, when, the, when the dictatorship expired. Usually it was after six months. And a lot of this is just, you only did that because that's the way that things had always been done. And by the time that you get to the period of my book, however, is people are now questioning how bound they really ought to be by any of this. And that if you want power, I mean, power is very seductive. Power is always going to be seductive, even to the Romans. And people started, Roman leaders started asking themselves, you know, like, why should I follow these things that inhibit my own ability to be the best and the strongest and have the most influence? when at the end of the day, if I just push harder, or if I pull out like a sword or uh, uh, threaten you with the with the leg of a bench, um, maybe I can just get my way. And then when I have power, there won't be anything you can do to challenge me, which unfortunately, at the end of the day is true. Political power rests on force, uh, not modes of behavior or norms or even written
0: laws. So uh, before we get into, you know, sort of the collapse here, let's talk about the 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 component parts of the Republic because that I think that's important to understand. Uh, so you mentioned there's the consulship, uh, which was basically like the executive branch, right? Correct. Yeah. And then there was a Senate and I'm guessing that was, uh, yeah, like what we have. And then there was the assembly. Um, I'm curious with the Senate and the assembly, were there who, depending on who your social class, did it, de- did that determine what you ended up in if you were a Senator or an, just an assemblyman? Yeah. Um, so the the you know we have our
1: today we have like our three branches of government. There's the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judicial branch. So the Romans had you know three branches of their constitution, but they didn't. It wasn't exactly that that same categorization. So you had the consuls and they were the executive, the sort of monarchical branch. The Senate then represented an aristocratic element, uh, which is the the wealthiest families and most prominent noble families would be in the Senate. And then the assemblies were ostensibly at least a body where all Roman citizens were were could constituent parts of the assembly like you could vote in the assembly. The Senate was not nobody was elected to the Senate. Uh, you were appointed by a guy called the uh, there was a particular office called the censor and every five years uh, he would go through the the list of who was in the Senate and who wasn't in the Senate and there was there was I mean there was a straight up wealth requirement. To be a member of the Senate, you had to own so much land, you had to have so much property to your name uh, to qualify for admission into the Senate, and then you also needed to be elected to an office. So you need, so it was really the the elite of the elite, uh, both in terms of wealth and political power, are in the Senate, whereas over in the Assembly, anybody can vote in the Assembly, and there there were. We, we, I don't think we need to get too deep into the weeds on the different types of assemblies. There's there's different uh, there's different versions of it. There's a plebeian assembly though that is specifically reserved for the common plebeians of Rome that specifically excluded the nobility. So there was this one place, the plebeian assembly, where uh, at least allegedly um, this is where the people were able to insert themselves and uh, and have some measure of power and control over the course of um, Roman politics and how the state was run.
0: Gotcha. So let's uh, get into where your book picks up. Um, As you said, Republic started 500 BC. By 146 BC, Rome had defeated Carthage in the third Punic war. And this is kind of where your book picks (laughs) up. And it seems like this victorious moment um, for the Romans was in many ways the, the beginning of the end for the Republic. What was it about these military victories that the Romans experienced, you know, with the Punic Wars that kind of sowed the seeds for destruction um, of the Republic? There's a there's a lot at work in it where, yeah, Rome,
1: Rome started, you know, as a as a little kingdom founded by Romulus way back in the 700s BC, and it's just this minor city state in Italy. And then over the centuries, they grow, and they grow, they take over Italy, and then they start expanding out of Italy. And they run into Carthage, and they have this huge war that goes on for 200 years. That By the end of that, uh, Rome and Rome's legions, I mean, they're the most powerful thing in the Mediterranean world, there's there's nothing that even kind of comes close to matching their power at this point, um, even if they only technically control territory in the Western Mediterranean. Still, anytime they decided to go east, they were just going to run roughshod over the, the like the decaying Hellenic kingdoms. So, the, reaching that pinnacle of success and power had a lot of had a lot of negative impacts on the uh, the health of the republic. So for example, you start having a massive influx of new wealth into Italy because, I mean, they're the most powerful thing. They have all the gold, they control all the trade routes. Um, so Italy becomes wildly rich, much, much richer than it had been even a century earlier. And most of that new wealth wound up in the pockets naturally of the leaders of Rome, the Senate of Rome, the, because the the consuls and the various uh, senators are the ones who were out there leading the armies they're the ones who are you know winning the spoils of war so it's very natural that they would be the ones to um to control the new wealth that's coming in and controlling all the slaves that are coming in because this is also Rome's transformation from being uh, a society that had slaves as all mediterranean societies did to a society that was really run by slaves where all the economic activity just about was, you know, from just the brute labor of digging ditches to uh, fine craft work being produced in the cities is all being done by slaves or their freedmen descendants. So you have this massive influx of new wealth that is going into the hands of very few people The regular folks of Rome, on the other hand, are kind of being shut out of all of that new wealth, and they start seeing their own fortunes decline. So Rome itself is benefiting massively financially from their victories over over Carthage and in Greece and in Spain. But the success was really only being held by a very, very few people at the very top. And that started dislocating traditional ways of life in Italy. And it started creating a lot of tension between the rich and the poor, uh, which is, you know, if we get into, we'll get into Tiberius Gracchus and what he was trying to accomplish. But then there's another, there's another element to this where then this goes back to arguments that Roman historians themselves made when they looked back on, on why the Republic started to collapse, is that after the defeat of Carthage, Rome doesn't really have a major foreign threat that holds them together that holds the elite together where they don't feel like they need to to work in lockstep with each other because even though they were all you know you're all senators you're all of a particular political class. I mean we know this today just because you're rich and powerful that doesn't mean you get along with other rich and powerful people you, they're often your most intense rivals And I think prior to the end of the Punic Wars there was a there was a an, an understanding that Rome, had threats that it was facing that they couldn't that the internal political elites couldn't let their own rivalries get too far out of hand or it would destroy Rome. Once you don't have that enemy binding them together anymore, they start to turn on each other and they're starting to use this new wealth not to fight the enemies of Rome but to fight each other. And once you once those political rivalries among the elite started to break out into kind of open
0: warfare, I mean then it was just how long until the Republic falls. Right, so uh, extreme income inequality is one of the one of the things that happened because of the the Punic Wars, um, and so as you said, there all there was this income inequality. So there's people putting out reform ideas, economic reform ideas, large scale economic reform ideas. You mentioned Tiberius Gracchus. What's his background? What was his reform idea to you know basically make things good with Rome again? Well, so the ironic thing about uh, Tiberius Gracchus is
1: that he came from the I mean the inner inner circle of the Roman nobility. I don't think that there, him and his brother Gaius, it, it would be hard to describe sort of better connected people. I mean, if they were in medieval times, you'd be saying that they were like the inner circle royal family where their fathers and their grandfathers were some of the most famous heroes in Roman history. And, um, you know, their mother was one of the most famous women in Roman history, uh, Cornelia Africana. So they co- they come from the inner circle of the nobility, but rather than using their connections and using what power they have and using the education uh, that they were that they were given to just simply keep going, uh, how it uh, to keep things going the way they had always been run, they identify reforms that need to be made to the way the republic is run, especially in the wake of their victories, because there, it was. Getting quite clear that there were economic and social problems that needed to be addressed, but the Senate was not addressing. And so, yeah, so Tiberius Gracchus and then 10 years later, his brother Gaius will come along and they will try to institute some some very
0: necessary reforms. Like one of them was the Lex Agraria that that theme seemed that that thing seemed to like just go on and on and on for like 10 or 20 years before it actually got put into place. Right. So yeah and tiberius's plan and he's he's working
1: with a couple of other um, rich senators and the, the basic program is all of the poor roman farmers the citizen farmers of rome over the over the previous generation had sort of been pushed off their land as rich senatorial magnates have all of this new wealth that they've acquired and they're looking f- for places to invest it and they start buying everybody out or maybe you know your husband has gone off to war and he never came back and now you just have this dilapidated little plot and you lose it so families the poorer families started to lose their land the richer families started to acquire these these massive extensive estates and Tiberius Gracchus came in with the Lex Agraria and it was really quite simple there was a there was technically a limit to how much of a certain kind of land you were allowed to own. Those limits had been disregarded for generations. And he said, look, we're going to, we're going to impose, we're going to start following this law that we actually do have. And I'm going to break up some of these big estates. I'm going to chop those into manageable chunks and I'm going to redistribute them to poor Roman citizens so that people can have land again, so that we don't lose uh, what made Rome great, which is the the strong independent
0: citizen farmer, but uh, a lot of people didn 't like that idea obviously
1: right the The rich landowners did not like that idea um one bit, <laughs> and uh they they took it as but they took it as a threat not just to not just that, like there's going to be some commission that comes around and you know takes some of your land, they also believed that what Tiberius Gracchus was doing was not just reforming. Not just making social and economic reforms, but that he was going to use this to acquire massive amounts of political power. Because if he's the guy who comes in as the champion of the people and distributes all of this land, I mean, he is, you know, we get to the end of chapter one, and he's managed to acquire quite a bit of power and popularity. And you go all the way back to the beginning of the founding of the Republic. And the principal idea here is that no one person is ever supposed to acquire this much power. And if somebody starts to accumulate a lot of power and a lot of popularity, the other noble families would sort of circle the wagons and, and gang up on that guy and beat him, beat him and his family back into place. And that's what happened with Tiberius, where there's this big question: you know, was he was he doing this land redistribution for noble purposes, right, to, to help the poor citizens of Rome, or was he doing it just cynically to accumulate? Um, political power for himself which is certainly what his enemies always said and you know
0: why he gets his head bashed in with uh with a with a bench <laughs> at the end right cha- at but, the end of chapter one yeah i mean that was crazy i mean th- you start seeing the breakdown of uh, most maiorum here and uh, their political process i mean what political and social precedents did the politicking of the lex agraria establish in rome after that point with tiberius gracchus
1: Oh, yeah. It, I mean, it was so unprecedented in so many ways. Um, and as I, as I said, at the end of chapter one, really, the thing that became a major problem is like this tit for tat escalation of breaking norms where there's a very small kernel that starts where traditionally, according to most maiorum if you were a tribune which is what Tiberius Gracchus was he'd been elected tribune of the plebs and this is how he's going to introduce the lex agraria is if you were a tribune and you had some new law that you wanted to introduce you showed it to the senate first and because they were the fathers of of the they were the fathers of Rome and they you know they would give you their reasoned um uh, opinion on the law and either say like yes you should do this or no you shouldn't but there were so many people inside the senate who were vehemently opposed to uh, land redistribution because they were the rich magnates who were going to lose their land, um, in all likelihood, if Tiberius had brought it to them, they would have not. They would have said, "Don't do this." And so he just skipped that part of the process, uh, even though traditionally that's what you were supposed to do. And instead, he just introduced it directly to the people. So this sets off warning bells inside the Senate. So what do they do? They go hire uh, another tribune who has this uh, one of the powers that a tribune has is just the ability to veto. Really, any legislation or any matter before that comes before the assembly. So they, uh, in, in essence, hire this guy named Octavius, this tribune named Octavius, to veto the reading of Tiberius's Lex Agraria, so it can't even be brought before the people. Um, this is another break. This is a so now we're, now we've ratcheted things up because in the past, if a tribune levied a veto against a bill that was very popular, and the Lex Agraria was very popular and it was going to pass they would back down. They would say, okay, I've sort of registered my symbolic opposition to this bill, but it's very popular. So now I'm going to withdraw my veto and let it go forward. Well, Octavius doesn't do that. Octavius just keeps his veto in place, no matter how popular it is, no matter how many people are screaming at him to um, to drop the veto, he just won't do it. Uh, so the only way out of this for Tiberius is either to back down and withdraw the Lexagraria or ratchet things up still, still another step further. So he, Tiberius Gracchus vetoes all legislation. He says, we're not doing anything. The whole state is shut down until we have a showdown over this Agraria. Until you back down, I'm going to, you, nobody's going to sign a contract. There's going to be no, um, no judicial proceedings. Nobody can, you know, take out a loan. Everything is shut down. So now Rome is shut down over this, which leads the Senate to attack Tiberius still further which leads Tiberius to make the next step in the, in the ratcheting up where he deposes Octavius from, from office. He gets the assembly to get together and vote, which had never been done before. You were never supposed to have the people vote out a tribune that they had just voted in in the first place. So it's just this, like, this very simple little bill. Uh, about land redistribution suddenly becomes about something way, way more than just the, the the reform that Tiberius is trying to make. And you start seeing people doing things way out of bounds, just really to block your opponents, um, to stop your opponent from getting their way. And that's, that's really when things, that entire precedent from that year of, of 133 BC then sort of lived in everybody's memory. And you remembered how then it ultimately ended. Which is, you know, the Senate, a couple of conservative senators leading an armed mob against Tiberius Gracchus, and literally beating him and his uh, and his opponents to death
0: to stop it. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. All right, when it comes to your clothing, your underwear is probably the last thing you think of. You're actually probably wearing the same brand of underwear that you did when you were in high school. But here's the thing. Underwear has changed since then, and one company leading the pack in the underwear evolution is Saks Underwear. What I love about Saks is their ballpark pouch, and yes, it does exactly what you think it does. It keeps everything nice and separate down there, so no more chafing, no more sticking. This is a game changer if you live in a very hot and humid place. I love wearing these things when I'm down working out in the garage. But don't take my word for it. You can try this out, and if you're not satisfied with the Underwear. With the ballpark pouch from Saks Underwear. They will exchange a refund your order within 30 days of purchase. So there's no risk involved here. So besides the no risk thing, we've got a special offer for our listeners for Saks Underwear. Saks Underwear is giving my listeners a very special limited time deal, 20% off your first purchase. But you have to go to my special URL. That's saxunderwear.com manliness. That's SaksUnderwear.com manliness. S-A-X-X. Two X's. S-A-X-X. Underwear.com manliness to get 20% off your first purchase also buy proper cloth. Now buying a dress shirt, big pain in the rear. Here's how it usually goes down. You go to the department store, you figure out your neck measurement, you find a shirt that fits your neck size, but then the sleeve, the cuff is too, you know, it's not small enough or it's too big or it's too billowy. So you adjust for that, but then the neck is too big or too small. It's a big pain in the butt. You need to check out proper cloth at proper cloth. You can get a perfect fitting shirt in seconds just by answering 10 simple questions no tape measure required yes it is true i've done this did that to get a nice oxford dress shirt fits me like a glove as soon as i got it i didn't have any of the measure it just answered the questions that they had and here's the thing not only do you get a, a custom fit shirt you get to choose how your shirt looks there's 20 different collar styles 10 cuff styles and over 500 fabrics to choose from from classic to business so you can completely customize your custom fit shirt at proper cloth they work with the best fabric producers from around the world and only buy fabrics that meet their high quality expectations and best of all with proper cloth they guarantee a perfect fit meaning that if somehow your shirt doesn't fit perfectly they will remake it for free and here's the thing all this stuff you probably think that costs 200 300 400 no just 80 dollars. so if you want to try this out i've got a special offer for you if you go to propercloth.com manliness and enter code manliness at checkout you'll get 20 dollars off on your first shirt all right so 60 dollars for custom shirt, just go to propercloth.com slash manliness, gift code manliness for $20 off your first shirt. Do it today. Now back to the show. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I was trying to imagine, you know, what that must've been like. And like in the the other part of the breakdown of most my arm, like sometimes they were, there's like, they were beating them down in a place where you weren't supposed to beat them down. Right. It was supposed to be sort of sacred. Um, but they're like, "Ah, yeah, yeah. This this is inside, this is inside the pomerium. Right. uh, and And the
1: reason they have to use, um, you know table legs um and various other like just bludgeons is because you weren't allowed to carry weapons inside inside that sacred boundary of Rome and so in in chapter 1 you have guys going up there with you know fists and you know various things you know like a rock just to like beat somebody up because you can't take a sword inside there well you know by the end of the book you have entire armies marching into that area like Sulla marches on Rome with an army and crosses that boundary so it's all these things like these little these little things that happened you know, in the 130s and the 120s, they just sort of slowly snowball. And once these precedents get set that you can actually win by just literally physically beating up your opponents, um, It's that's a tough lesson to unlearn.
0: Yeah. And I thought it was interesting, all these reformers, I think one thing they all had in common was that they had this idea of, you know, going back to the way things were, right? So they were kind of conservative, but at the same time to do that, they had to break with tradition, uh, in order to accomplish those goals. And that kind of led to them not being able to achieve the goal that they had in mind, which was, let's go back to the way things were when the Republic was first founded. It is, you have correctly identified
1: um, a hot mess of contradiction <laughs> that, that was uh, that was going on with these guys, whether the Grokai, guy who, yeah, there's, there's a, you can frame everything that they were doing as we're trying to restore things to the way that they once were, like things have gotten out of whack and we're trying to bring it back. Um, and then you go all the way to, you fast forward all the way to the end of the book and Sulla, you know, he is absolutely, at least in his own mind, believes that he is going to restore the Republic to what it was originally. But yeah, to get there, I mean, he breaks every, he breaks every rule in the book. <laughs> you know, he, he's got heads mounted in the forum uh, in pursuit of his traditional political morality. Um, so yeah, it's uh it's it's good it's good sometimes if you're a leader to not think too hard about uh, what you're
0: doing <laughs> because otherwise it would break right. your it would break your head Wait.
1: because you would realize that you were you were like I say a hot mess of contradictions
0: right so besides this in- income um, inequality that they were trying to battle they are also had a migrant problem. Um, particularly people from the north. Uh, these were the, um, is it the Kimbri or the Simbri? Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody has their preferred uh,
1: pronunciation. I've always gone with Kimbri.
0: Okay, Kimbri. So who were the Kimbri and why did they start appearing in Italy about this time? The Kimbri are
1: a, a very large, you know, it's, it's tough to say ethnically what they were, but, you know, Germanic, um, Germanic people who originated, I think the best guess is in, in modern Denmark. Uh, is where they were coming from, and they set off in about the 120s, um, you know, in about 120, on a on a very large civilizational migration, right? This wasn't just like you know, like a like a wagon train or two. Um, this wasn't just like a a, a group uh, that went off. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, and they picked up and they left uh, modern Denmark for. Nobody quite knows why. I mean, there's actually some some very interesting little stray references, and um, I think it's Strabo where they talk about how th- maybe the sea level had risen and and uh, and wrecked where where it was that they had been living. There was some kind of weird climate change uh, that had gone on, so they start moving south, and they're looking for a new home. But well, most places are inhabited already, so they just kind of keep moving and keep moving and keep moving. And then um, you know, by the by the uh, five or six years later. They are they are showing up, really knocking on Italy's door, which is they're at the Alps, and you know the Romans, like everybody else, don't like the idea of these hundreds of thousands of people um wandering through their territory. So they start getting into a series of clashes with the Kimbri that are called the Kimbric Wars. And how'd that turn out for the Romans? How'd that work out for the Romans? It worked out very badly for the Romans <laughs> for a very long time. Uh, every time they fought the Kimbri, they got. Uh, I don't know what the level of swearing is on this podcast, but they got their asses kicked uh, over and over again. The interesting thing about the Kimbri is that even though they're often portrayed as wanting to come down and invade Italy, and uh, the Romans are, are fighting them off to prevent them from invading Italy, every time the Kimbri win a battle, they just kind of walk away. They they show up in like one now I'm going to forget the date, but I think it was 113. They defeat the Romans in battle. And instead of going into Italy, they just keep going up into Gaul, which is modern France. Then they circle back around after migrating some more like four years later, they beat the Romans again in battle in Gaul and again, don't invade Italy. And then even the third time, that they beat the Romans in battle. Four or five years after that, again they don't invade Italy, and it's not until the fourth time they come back around. This is after the Romans have been fighting with them, um, you know, for fifteen years, that they finally decide, okay, well now we're going to push into Italy and try to try to make our home there, as opposed to anywhere else. And what the Kimbri were up to during this whole period is just it's a complete historical mystery um, because the Romans never took much time to try to understand what the Kimbris motivations were or what they were trying to do, or why is it that they never did find a home and they just kept wandering around Europe for like, for like 15 or 20 years. Um, the whole thing is just kind of a mystery that ends with them. Yeah. Finally pushing their way into Italy, uh, but getting destroyed by Gaius Marius and that's the end of the Kimbri.
0: Yeah. And so I'm guessing this, the the encounters of the Kimbri, they were just expending a lot of the romans were expending a lot of resources that they probably shouldn't have been expending
1: yeah i mean the and the Kimbri were swallowing legions whole um where you know there was the famously the, the battle of arausio is one of the biggest you know, disasters uh, in the whole history of the empire, not just like this part of the book. But, you know, there's some battles that Hannibal won. And then there's some later stuff against like Attila where, um, or some some of those later wars that are, you know, the Romans were losing 50, 60, 70,000 people in battle. And and this is one of them where the Kimbri just swallow like 50,000, 50,000 legionaries uh, in a single day. And it's interesting because this time period you know, in, in the book too is you talk a lot about their war with Jugurtha and everything that was going on where there, there's this, been this whole new uh, – new, this new uh, problem that's opened up in Rome with this uh, – with the corruption of the Senate and Jugurtha bribing senators to not go to war with him and it seems very clear that one of the reasons why the Senate – didn't want to go to war with Jugurtha in North Africa is because they had this recurring problem on their northern border of these great hordes um, crossing over and just overwhelming all Roman defenses. Okay, so
0: you mentioned Gaius Marius. He's the guy that kind of put the end to the Kimbri. Uh, Who was this guy and um, why was he considered the third founder of Rome? Gaius
1: Marius was he was a uh, he was a new man right this is a concept that gets uh, introduced in the book the novus homo where the the consulships the high offices uh, admission into the senate is all tightly controlled by the noble families of rome and a noble family by this point is defined as somebody who has a consular ancestor right where if if you've if your father or your grandfather or your great grandfather uh, had achieved the consulship, then your whole family was then ennobled. Uh, you you became one of the elite of the elite, and those families tried to keep the consulship uh, in their own in their own hands. They didn't want to share with anybody else. They didn't like it when quote unquote new men showed up. Uh, and Gaius Marius was a new man. He was he's not some like hard scrabble uh, commoner. He comes from a, a very affluent family uh, from a city not too far away from Rome, but he had no consular ancestors. He was a novus homo. Um, but he was incredibly ambitious. And so he wanted to push his way into power and he ultimately was able to push his way into power thanks to, again, the, the constant now complaints about the corruption and the self-centeredness of the Senate. He was able to kind of harness a lot of those, a lot of the same energy that drove the Gracchi. Uh, Gaius Marius was able to harness a lot of that for his own for his own aims, and he manages to push his way into the consulship. Um And by that point, it's also very clear that Gaius Marius is one of the best generals uh, that Rome has ever seen. And this has been constantly one of his own complaints, is that by keeping the consulships in the hands of the nobility, it didn't matter if you were a good general or a bad general or a good leader or a bad leader. It just mattered whether or not you were noble. Um, So Gaius Marius is sitting there as easily the most talented um, general that Rome had, and they were trying to keep him out of Rome's wars. Like this is a crazy thing to do just from a from a straight like meritocracy standpoint. You want your best generals and your best people to be in charge of the armies and, and Marius was being blocked from that. But by the time the Cimbri come along, he has finally, he successfully achieved the consulship and he's proven that he's the best man for the job and they finally do send him and he succeeds where everybody else failed. I mean, the Romans had done nothing but fail and fail and fail and fail against the Cimbri um,
0: until Marius comes along. And was that why he got the third founder of Rome title? Cause he defeated the Kimbri or what, what, what happened? What else did he do? Right.
1: Okay. So this, this third founder of Rome business is, um, it's, it's crazy because obviously the first founder of Rome is Romulus and right? he's the founder of Rome. Um, the second founder of Rome is a now somewhat obscure figure named Marcus Furius Camillus, who, uh, There's this there's this episode way back in like the three nineties three eighties BC where where a horde of um of of Gauls came into Italy sacked Rome and they were the the defeated Romans are looking kind of at the the ruins of their city and they're wondering whether or not they should even rebuild and uh, Camillus is the guy who says no we should stay here we should rebuild so it's very natural to call him the second founder of Rome right that makes a lot of sense well you fast forward um. And what what Marius has done is simply delivered uh, delivered Rome from the threat of the Cimbri, which is a great accomplishment. But uh, I'm not quite. I, I was never. I've never entirely been sure how he, of all the heroes that Rome had, had I mean Scipio Africanus was, had saved Rome from Hannibal, right? i I've, It's never been entirely clear to me why Scipio Africanus, for example, was not considered the third founder of Rome. Uh, for finally delivering Rome from from Hannibal, but Gaius Marius gets to be called the third founder of Rome uh, for beating the Cimbri. So it's a it's a good question that is it's a you know it's a it's a nice thing it's a nice title that he got, uh,
0: but I've never entirely been sure where it came from. So one of the reforms that he made as general was he exempted land the land ownership requirement for soldiers. Why did he have to do that, and why was that such a big deal? So the thing to understand
1: about the way that war worked in the ancient world, and certainly in Rome, is that you actually had to be rich enough to serve in the armies. You had to you had to own land to serve in the armies, um, which is kind of the opposite of what we think of armies today, where it's ty- typically the ranks of the military are filled with um, with the poorest members of a society, as opposed to the richest members. But or in the in the early days, you know, you had to outfit yourself. You had to provide your own, uh, you know, equipment and spears and horses and all that. So you you actually had to own enough to serve in the military. Well, by the time that we're, that Gaius Marius comes along in the time of the guy, right? What's one of these big problems that we've seen is um, is all the poor all the poorer citizens, the people who did have land, who did qualify to serve in the legions, now losing that land. And now you have fewer and fewer people who are able to enter the ranks of the legions. And you have a real conscription crisis where it's it's becoming more difficult uh, to fill the legions year in and year out. And then you know you send off, you send all these people off against the Kimbri and they get annihilated like, okay, well you've just lost the ability to conscript any of those people ever again because, because they're dead. Um, well, what are, you, what are you ultimately going to do? Are you going to hold on to this idea that you need to have a certain amount of wealth to serve in the legions? Uh, or are you just going to say, let's just drop this requirement altogether and you can, you can conscript from anybody? And you know, given the emergency situation that Marius was up against and that Rome was up against, they decided to drop the property requirement for service in the legion, which was even at that point, still very nominal. Like it wasn't even that much, um, but they finally got rid of it. And yeah, all of the, um, the poor plebs, the, the, you know, the, uh, who had really no other place to go signed up uh, to go serve with Gaius Marius and hopefully get rich in the army.
0: And how did that affect the military? Did it, uh, was it a detriment or did it actually help? That was the thing that helped Marius defeat the Kimbri finally. It's definitely, it's one of those things that it's a
1: mixed bag, right? Where if they didn't drop the property requirement, eventually Rome would have been overwhelmed by their enemies. Um, you know, even if, even if they had defeated Carthage once upon a time, uh, somebody would come along, the Kimbri would come along or some other power would eventually rise and they simply, Rome would, would simply not be able to meet the challenge Um once they drop the property requirement, they are able to tap into an even deeper well of, of, um, of conscripts and, and population. So they were able, the Romans from this point on, once you drop that property requirement, I mean, they can conscript like crazy. And by the time you get to the wars of Julius Caesar, um, the civil wars, and then the imperial um, armies that, that wind up running uh, the, the frontiers of the empire then for the next couple of centuries, I mean, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people uh, under arms, which would not have been possible. Uh, without this without dropping this property requirement the negative side of it is and you know many commentators again going back to the Romans themselves noticed that uh, when you were a citizen farmer who was conscripted for a short campaign and then you went back to your farm uh, you had this there was this um, identification of the citizen with you know Rome with the army it was all kind of the same thing once you bring all these, uh, these poor conscripts in their loyalty to the state itself is very suspect. Uh, their loyalty is mostly to the general who is the one who is going to lead them in battle and enrich them because they're going to now, they're going to get slaves. They're going to get money. They're going to get booty. Um, and at the end of the day, like if, if a general says, if a general for the last couple of years has kept you, you know, whatever poor private in the Roman legions, if you, if you're getting rich off of this guy, um, and he says, "Well, look, you know, I've got some political enemies in Rome. I think we need to go. Uh, I think we need to go march on Rome and, and kick the crap out of them. You're you're going to listen to your general as opposed to feel any sort of tug of like, well, wait a minute, you know, oh, the the Senate and people of Rome is a sacred thing. It's it's not really a sacred thing to you if you are just um, if you've been poor and you've been left behind and you've been kind of spat on by the nobility your whole life. Well." yeah why not follow this general uh hope he wins and when he does you get rich along with him or at least you know richer than you had been
0: all right so speaking of a general who did this leads us nicely to sola uh well, i i i do try to keep the segues very natural no very 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 good very impressive so who was this sola guy and what were his political uh aims sola
1: is He's on the other side. So like Gaius Marius was you know, a nobody, a novus homo, um, who had to fight and plot his way up the um, you know, up the ranks. Uh Sulla comes from one of these old patrician noble families. Now, his his own family in the last couple of generations hadn't been much to speak of, but he he had all the blood. He had all the aristocratic, the aristocratic air. All, all the adva- All basically, all the advantages that Marius uh, did not have, Sulla did have. And he is just like any other Roman in that he, w- any, or at least any other Roman noble, incredibly ambitious. He wants to be the most powerful man. He wants to be uh, the most influential man. Uh, he wants to be rich. He wants to be powerful. And he. Again, he just rises on up through the ranks, um, without really ever trying too hard. He's supremely talented and supremely charismatic, um, but he he wants to be the most important, most powerful man in Rome.
0: And so, what did he what did he do to achieve that that end?
1: Well, in the beginning, he's just doing his his normal thing, or the normal thing that anybody would do. He, he runs for office, and he starts rising up the ranks, and but he winds up becoming especially a model for Julius Caesar, right? He, there, there's a lot of similarities between the career of Caesar and, and the career of Sulla, where Sulla is coming along in the one teens, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, so so after the Gracchi, um is when Sulla shows up. and Sulla is definitely somebody who recognizes that his ambition doesn't necessarily have to be bound by these old rules of most maiorum that if he is in a tight spot, that he can just circumvent whatever the rules of fair play are supposed to be. You know, he, even though he was a noble, um, you know, he too can look at Gaius Gracchus and Tiberius Gracchus and some of the things that Marius did. Um, And say, well, if you know, if my enemies are backing me into a corner, why don't I just do an end run around them? And it, you know, all this, it starts with him even just subtly. You know, him, him and Marius had this had this rivalry uh, throughout their entire lives, where Sulla's about fifteen, like ten or fifteen years younger than Marius, where Sulla starts to subtly undermine Marius in a way that. By all rules of tradition, by all rules of most maiorum, you know, Sulla should be exalting Marius and saying that Marius did this and Marius did this great thing. But Sulla starts taking credit for things um, that Marius doesn't think that Sulla should be taking credit for. If you read the book, this this is all will all be explained probably better than I'm doing it right now. Um, But it was very it's very clear from very early that Sulla is not going to feel bound by any. Kind of traditional rules of behavior. If those rules are standing between him and power,
0: but the interesting thing was that Sola, like some of the other reformers, he, like he, he said that his goal was to take Rome back to its root. He was restoring, he restoring Rome, the republic. But he was kind of the guy, like as you said, he kind of set the precedent for Julius Caesar and the rise of the empire.
1: Yeah, Sola, Sola, as we said earlier, um, he's he's the classic hot mess of contradictions where. He he does consider himself to be a divinely appointed figure, like literally like the gods are using me as a vessel to restore the balance of the old Republican Constitution to sort of turn back the clock on... Some of the things that the Gracchi had introduced, some of uh, the more populist leanings, uh, the populist direction that Rome had taken over the past couple of decades, and that he was going to restore the aristocracy and the Senate to its proper place as the center and leading power and leading light of Rome. Um, so this is all very traditional Roman Republican morality, but to achieve this end, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he does nothing. No, there's nothing conservative about what Sulla... What Sulla does, he, he he gets. There's a, p- a part in the book where he's, you know, six, he's is by his enemies, and they wind up um, expelling him from uh, from the office that he had. And rather than just take it, like he, you know, you would expect somebody to, you know, I, I got beat fair and square. You know, he just turned his armies on Rome and said, no, that's not going to be the end of me. Um, so yeah, even though his object was extraordinarily conservative, his his um his actions were were very radical. And then by the end of the book, he's established this new constitution, which is supposedly going to restore the Republic um, to its former glory. But the people who came after him, the generations after him, Julius Caesar, Pompey, you know, Crassus, those guys, they they don't care about the written constitution that Stella has laid down. They just looked at his biography. They looked at his life and they said, look, if if you're powerful enough and you're daring enough and bold enough um, you can do anything you want. That's, that's the lesson of Sulla's life. Not, not, we should just follow the Senate. Yeah. So
0: the complete breakdown of most maiorum. Yeah. I think Sulla pretty much represents that in spades. Yeah. And then this is basically, this is the storm before the storm Republic falls. I mean, what, at what point would you say like, yeah, the Republic no longer exists. It is now officially Roman empire. Was it just when the Caesar was made.
1: Yeah. It's,
0: it's, that's
1: another one of these great, you know, running debates in history. um, Because, where do where do you where do you mark the end of the Republic? Um, you know, you say okay, well, Julius Caesar comes along, and you know, in the 40s BC, you could you could say it was from when he, uh, you know, when he crossed the Rubicon in 49 BC, that was the end of it. Or you could say, oh, and he was himself appointed dictator for life five years later, which is right before they assassinated him. And then, but then his heirs, uh, Mark Antony and Octavian, wind up fighting a battle with the last remnants of the senatorial aristocracy a couple of years later, and you could maybe mark that as the end of the republic or then as we know if we watch movies like Cleopatra, um, Octavian and Mark Antony have a whole series of civil war so maybe the fall of the republic is is when Octavian triumphs and becomes Augustus which is you know in the 20s BC but um the thing about all this is that then Augustus is an incredibly savvy political operator and he maintains the entire functioning facade of the republic for his regime you know there was never a point in Augustus's life, and he's he's Rome's first emperor, uh, where he says, "I am the emperor now. I'm I'm the all powerful emperor." There's there, that is doesn't happen. Um, so for for the next couple of hundred years, the facade of the republic continues to exist, where there's still elections, there's still consuls, there's still assemblies, but it's all just been uh, it's all manipulated, and real power is held um, by this by the imperial family. So traditionally, you say. Uh, the rise of Augustus, who octa- is uh, Julius Caesar's great nephew, uh, his arrival is the end of the Republic finally in like 27 BC. But he he's a savvy guy. Nobody, nobody exactly knew when the Republic fell
0: because he didn't want people to think that it had fallen. Right. So we're going to get to the fun part because everyone loves to do this with Rome. The United States is heavily patterned after Rome, right? Our balanced government Came from Rome. I know historians don't like using, like making the comparisons, but it's fun. Do you see any similarities between our Republic and the Roman Republic as you wrote this book? Yeah, there's there's plenty of
1: similarities. You know that's why the analogy continues to come up and why it continues to persist. Obviously, we patterned ourselves quite explicitly. I mean, we have a we have a Senate for a reason, right? The Senate's not just some name we pulled out of a hat. You know, we were we were trying to model it explicitly on a, on what the Romans had, and certainly the early United States was a was a closely held landed oligarchy i think just in terms of political science definitions of these terms that's pretty much what the early united states was and what what rome was the the really fascinating thing is of course that you know we start the, both the united states and rome started from very humble beginnings i mean the origin story of rome is not particularly it's it's quite unsavory right like even the romans themselves the way they described their early the early kingdom some unsavory characters and they were uh, they were not particularly strong or powerful in the early days, just like the United States was, and then rose slowly but steadily over time to become the most powerful government or the most powerful state in the world. And, you know, we say the known world, even though, like, they didn't touch, you know, the Romans don't touch India, they don't touch China or anything like that. So they're not necessarily the most powerful thing in the world. But in the Mediterranean world, Rome certainly was that. And the United States more or less achieved that over the course of World War One, you know, is when we kind of burst onto the world scene in World War II and the Cold War, you know, by the, by the nineties, the early two thousands, you're quite openly talking about the United States as a hyperpower. Um, So there are plenty of similarities about the the rise in the course of, uh, of Rome and the United States of America with one of the most interesting being that we have managed to maintain just like they did uh, this sort of kingless Republic. We, we, have continued to have, even as we've risen as an empire, uh, we've managed to maintain this sort of sense of cooperative government uh, without any one person ever permanently achieving power, despite what you know, like, well, Franklin Roosevelt tried to get up to.
0: Right. Well, Mike, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your the rest of the work you do?
1: Ah, uh, you can go to, uh, the storm before the storm.com, which is just the, that's going to be the book page. And that'll tell you where you can pre-order the book, which is out, uh, October the 24th, 2017. Uh, so you need to either pre-order the book or go down to one of your fine independent bookshops and pick it up when it comes out. I also continue to do a, uh, a podcast, right? That's where I come from here. I come from the Revolutions Podcast and you can go to revolutionspodcast.com and that I will walk you through all of the great political revolutions in history. So that's continuing. I'm about to go back to work right now on an episode about the liberal revolutions of 1848. And then I'll also, I'll be on tour for the book in October and November and December off and on. Uh, So I will have dates in New York and Philadelphia and Boston and Washington, D.C., and then I'll do a West Coast swing in December. And all the details for that are, again, at revolutionspodcast.com or uh,
0: thestormbeforethestorm.com. Awesome. Well, Mike Duncan, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Ah, Thank you very much my guest today was mike duncan he's the author of the book storm before the storm it's available for pre-order on amazon.com right now go check it out if you love roman history you're gonna love this book he does such a great job it's not dry history it's like engaging full of intrigue it's like you're reading some sort of like game of thrones novel so go check it out also you can check out more about his work at revolutionspodcast.com and check out his podcast uh, the history of rome it's 2007 to 2012 it's available on itunes and check out his latest podcast revolutions really great show. Also. Check out our show notes aom.is/duncan where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the podcast, have gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps us out a lot. If you've done that already, please tell your friends about the podcast. One thing I've learned is that most people learn about the podcast from their friends, not through social media or Google or whatever. It's just a friend said, hey, check out this podcast. I'd appreciate it if you tell a friend or two about it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.